Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 26 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 28th of July. And Leon, this week we're talking to Tim Kramer. That's right, Tim Kramer is a co-founder of Avaza and he's going to be talking to us all about his all-in-one professional services automation tool that seamlessly combines time tracking, expense reporting, quoting and invoicing with project management. Yeah, automation is a big thing these days, isn't it? That's right. So uh, it's really, it's very, very handy tool for anyone running a business. And after that, we're going to have a chat with AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, and he's going to be talking to us all about what's happening with the Australian dollar. Okay, let's listen to Tim Kramer. Tim, tell us about Avaza. Oh, well, Avaza is an all-in-one solution for running efficient, client-focused businesses. So it's designed to be one product that combines uh, project management, time tracking, expense reporting, uh, quoting and invoicing in a seamless way so that you can have one software to, to run your whole business. And do you develop this software? Yes, we do. So Vazza is a startup. We started about three years ago and both founders, we had this background in software consulting and knew that many companies we worked with, like creative agencies, marketing agencies, architects and lawyers all had these sort of similar problems they needed to solve, like collaborating with their customers and tracking the amount of time they were spending and then billing those customers for that work. Automated processes are becoming very important and prolific in business. Does your system interface in any way with that kind of software? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, I believe that you know businesses need to stay efficient they have to be as competitive as possible in this competitive marketplace so any sort of automation that's possible is so important and so with Avaza we both integrate with all sorts of other products and we also implement a lot of automation processes within the product itself for example for your project management when you're setting up regular tasks that you need to perform for example you're a marketing company and we have a marketing team and you have various activities you want to perform every month you can set up a template project and then just create an instance of that project every month and all your tasks are already there, ready to go and ready to delegate and mark off. Uh, similarly, we have things like automatic recurring invoicing so that if you have customers, say, on retainer and you need to regularly invoice them, um, you can set up a recurring invoice once and then it gets sent to your customers automatically, say, every month. Would this project management side of it fit into the construction industry? Look, I think for certain types of construction... Yes. I'd say, for example, we have with our detailed task tracking, we allow you to visualize your tasks as, say, Gantt charts, which is a common requirement to sort of visualize the schedule of your projects on larger projects. And I don't know, look, Gantt charts are a new feature for us. We're really interested to see which part of the construction industry wants to pick it up. And I think they'll find lots of benefits if they do. One of the interesting features of this is you could actually make team collaboration much easier with this system, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can invite all your team members into Avaza and you can invite your customers as well. And you can choose which projects they have access to and what they can see. For your team members, it means they can see all the tasks across the whole team. They can have nice, easy views of, say, the tasks that are assigned to them and that they have due coming up. And similarly for customers, you can delegate tasks to your customers and, and give them deadlines and they'll receive automatic reminders. There's that sort of automatic keyword again. 
and so that it's a nice diplomatic way to get timely information back from your customers and, and be able to see where the progress of your entire project is at any time. Another aspect of collaboration, I think, is the ability to have discussions on project tasks and also to share files related to projects. So often you have deliverables that are like files that you want to attach to tasks and get approvals from your clients and share them with clients. So Avaza makes that easy. Now, Asia is a potentially a big market for Australian companies. Uh, can your software or will you be handling other languages and looking to an export business, either regional or globally? So Avaza is currently available globally, and we have customers in 150 countries, including a lot of Asia already. So far, we're mostly targeting an English-speaking audience, but we love being an exporter and continually uh, interacting and getting feedback from customers all around the world. We did have to do some things to make our product suitable for that global audience. For example, on customer-facing aspects of the products like invoicing, for example, we allow people to override the text um, on all the labels on invoices so they can rewrite it in their preferred language so they can easily send invoices in any language they want. We also support full multi-currency and have things like live exchange rate feeds for tracking exchange rates relative to your favorite base currency so that you can view reports in any currency you want. Yeah, so we've done a little bit to make our product suitable for a global audience and we've seen good take up globally. Have you had to change languages? We haven't changed languages yet. I think it's something we look to do in the future. At the moment, doing a really good job serving the, the English speaking languages is most important to us. So for a client, you would handle his project, say, but do you handle some of his back office functions as well? Yes. Yeah, so we handle the project management side, but also time tracking tools, expense reporting. So the whole team can enter their expenses. We handle quoting and invoicing and receiving payments. So when someone sends an invoice, their customer can uh, view the invoice online or on their mobile phone or anywhere and pay it instantly online using their PayPal or using their credit card. So how much has your company grown? It's grown more than 300% in the last year in revenue. Uh, it's growing around 10 to 15% in revenue every month. So we're really enjoying that growth. And the big challenge is that we're always supporting more and more customers. So our team grows to make sure that we can continue giving great customer support. And the other thing we noticed is that with growth, you get a lot more feature requests. So every single day, we receive feature requests for interesting new features that people would like to to have as enhancements on the product. And, and so we're prioritizing those and implementing is all the ones that make sense. And so which features are you now adding? An example just from a few weeks ago was Gantt Charts. It's such a popular project management visualization where you can see all of your tasks and your project along a timeline where you can see each task start date and end date. And that's a little horizontal bar along the time. It really helps with scheduling and managing your resources. On that topic of managing resources, one of the next features that we'll be building is resource scheduling modules so that you can see where all your people are allocated across projects and be more efficient in choosing the right people to allocate to the right projects at the right time and maximizing the utilization of your team. I would imagine all of this would really improve the ROI on projects too, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Look, I think that you know, in this competitive environment, it's so important for any sort of client-focused company to carefully track 
like the budgets and the return on investment of their projects. So in Avaza, you can set up budgets on your projects, whether you're charging your people for a time-based billing or fixed amounts, you can still track time against projects and all of your costs. Mm -hmm. And then you can see nice visualizations and reports on your project profitability. And that sort of information gives you better insights into which customers are the most valuable and what sort of business is the most profitable for your business and, and make better decisions to grow that business. A final question, which are the companies that have been most attracted to Avaza? I think it'd be both creative agencies and IT teams are probably most attracted to Avaza. We see a lot of teams from anything of freelancers and duos up to teams of 200 plus consultants that are working together on Avaza. And, you know, it's really great to see small, medium-sized businesses being able to embrace more mature processes and become more efficient. Tim Kremer, thank you very much for your time. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Darren Leon, thanks very much for having me. So, you know, as I said earlier, automation is very important these days. Absolutely. I think it's very critical for any business. It uh, doesn't help employment much. That's right. That's right. But but look, a tool like Avaza would come, really come in handy. Oh, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and now Shane, let's talk to him. Shane Oliver, the dollar's been on an upward trajectory since the uh, Reserve Bank put out its uh, minutes the other week, signifying a rate of 3.5%. I mean, what's your view about this? Well, I, I must admit the Aussie dollar has continued to come in stronger than I would have expected. Uh, for some time, my view has been that the Aussie dollar will go lower, and yet it's defied that uh, view now for a year or so, being stuck in a range between 72 and 78 cents. And then, of course, in the last week, breaking out on the upside, I think there's three things pushing the Aussie dollar higher at the moment. One is the signs of less inflation in the US, which, of course, is causing expectations that the Fed will delay raising interest rates again. That's pushed the US dollar down. And then, of course, locally, we've had stronger economic data, particularly for employment. And, of course, those comments from the Reserve Bank, which seem to signal a somewhat more positive view on the Australian economy than they previously signalled. And then finally, of course, whenever the Aussie dollar breaks out of a, a technical range, just like any market, it tends to attract interest to it. So once we went through 78 cents a week or so ago, that, of course, has attracted more buying into the Australian dollar, pushing it higher. But as I say, it, it has surprised me. I would have thought in a world where Aussie interest rates aren't doing much, but US interest rates are rising, that we would see more downside in the Australian dollar. And ultimately, I still think that will happen. But uh, in the short term, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see an eight in front of the, uh, the Aussie dollar, um, in other words, up into the low 80s before it does go down again. Into the low 80s. Uh, that, that's interesting. So, I mean, there's some speculation could go as high as 85. Well, it could. Once you start going up, of course, projections and predictions come out of the woodwork. Earlier this year when it was down at 72 cents, of course, people were, were calling it lower at the time. And at various points in time, that, that's often the way the market works. People are asked you know, what their forecasts are when it starts moving. And, of course, uh, when, it, when it's rising, you know, people fall over themselves with higher levels. But I think fundamentally a rising Australian dollar is sort of the last thing Australia needs at the moment because we're in a very different situation with the US. The US is sort of in recovery mode. Its uh, housing market has had a bust and it's in recovery mode as well, whereas Australia... We never really had much of a downturn at the time of the GFC. Although we've had subdued growth, we have had very strong housing-related indicators. And the risk is that going forward, that housing will start to slow. That will act as a drag on the economy. 
the Australian consumer is still struggling a little bit. That's another drag on the economy and a rising Australian dollar um, at a time when mining investment is still falling will make life tough for the Australian economy. And ultimately, therefore, I think it should be going down, not up. But of course, what I think it should be doing and what it will do is a different thing. But so short term, I think, yeah, there is risk on the upside for the Aussie, but I don't see it going up on a sustained basis. Right. But of course, that would obviously create issues for the Reserve Bank of Australia, wouldn't it? I think a, uh, a rise, you know, a rising Australian dollar is creating issues for the Reserve Bank. And that's uh, partly why the Deputy Governor, Guy DeBell, late last week, sort of poured cold water on all the excitement around the minutes from the Reserve Bank meeting. Um, and amongst other things, he indicated that a rising Australian dollar will, will offset the benefit for the Australian economy of stronger global growth and that it would be nice to have a lower Australian dollar. So I think the Reserve Bank would certainly prefer a lower rather than a rising or higher Australian dollar. And, of course, uh, as it goes up, that's a de facto monetary tightening. It makes life tougher for anyone, any business that has to compete internationally, whether it's farmers or manufacturers or tourist operators or higher education institutions or even miners. Um, this will make life tougher for them whereas the economy really needs to continue this transition away from reliance on uh, mining investment as mining investment still falling. Um, a rising Australian dollar will just complicate that, as the Reserve Bank has been saying for the last few months. So my, my feeling is that uh, yeah, this will make life tough for the Reserve Bank, and I guess it highlights the difficult balancing act they face at the moment. On the one hand, they're a bit reluctant to cut again for fear that that might you know, further stimulate the housing sector. On the other hand... Um, uh, raising rates you know, could damage the economy. That would be added to if the Aussie dollar keeps going up. What impact would uh, rising currency have on inflation? Well, a rising Aussie dollar actually uh, reduces inflation. Simple reason being is that anything that's imported and about 20% or so of the things in the consumer price index are imported go down in price. So uh, a 10% rise in the value of the Aussie dollar all things being equal and assuming a, a perfect flow-through will knock 2% off inflation over time. Of course, it never quite works out to that degree in terms of timing or you know, there's long and variable lags there and uh, the impact gets muted over time. But a rising Australian dollar will put downwards pressure on the Australian and inflation. So to the extent that the Reserve Bank wants to push the underlying rate of inflation up, a rise in the Australian dollar will actually push in the opposite direction. And, of course, uh, any change in that direction would not be insignificant in a low-inflation world. No, this is the, the problem. We've already got uh, inflation running around relatively low levels. The headline rate has picked up again and might go a, a little bit higher because of higher energy prices. You know, utility costs have all gone up this quarter. But underlying inflation, which is the one that, that really matters in terms of sustainability, is remaining fairly low and people are only getting or getting record low wage increases. Uh, retailers face an incredibly uh, competitive environment, particularly with Amazon talking about coming into the Australian market next year. Consumer spending power is not great in the first place. And so, yeah, the last thing you want is anything that, that sort of pushes inflation back down again and a rising currency could threaten to do that. And of course, the consumer confidence figures are all over the place. They are, and that's the thing you notice in Australia, that business confidence is actually quite high. Maybe that's because uh, low wages are good for their profits, whereas consumer confidence is actually quite subdued in the great scheme of things. It's not 
disastrous. It's not at recessionary levels, but it's certainly not at levels that you'd normally associate with strong consumer spending. And so consumers, I guess, in Australia, I guess, are being affected by a few things at present, very low wages growth, high levels of underemployment. And of course, in recent uh, weeks, they've had to put up with further increases in, in power prices, you know, upwards of 20% or so. That's all cutting into consumer spending power. And then, of course, there's also this talk about higher interest rates in Australia at a time when household debt levels are at record highs. So all of these things are naturally uh, weighing on consumer spending. And of course, consumer spending is the biggest part of the Australian economy. And if it's uh, subdued, then it's going to keep overall growth subdued. Now, just on another matter with uh, in regard to interest rates, I mean, do you still see it as a 2018 story? There any increase? 2018 is the most likely timing for a move in interest rates on the upside. Although, you know, I guess economists like myself have been saying this for a while, that maybe next year or maybe next year and it keeps getting pushed out. But I, I think you know, by uh, the second half of 2018, we might get a bit more clarity on the economy. The big slump in mining investments that's been underway for the last five years or so will have come to an end or will largely be over anyway. And we, we'll probably also be a bit clearer then in terms of what's happening with the housing market. So second half 2018 or late 2018 is the most likely timing as far as we can tell. But I guess the big issue is are interest rates going to go up by two percentage points? Are we going to see the eight rate hikes that 3.5% neutral rate from the Reserve Bank would imply? And, and I don't think that's going to be the case. The neutral rate of interest is a very rubbery academic concept. Um, central banks naturally like to have an idea as to what it is because it tells them roughly where interest rates would be at equilibrium, but they never quite know precisely whether it's 3.5% or 4.5% or 2.5%. All they probably know is that it's a bit lower than it was, say, 10 years ago. So basically what's happened here in Australia is that household debt has gone higher and therefore each percentage point change in interest rates has a much bigger impact today than it did, say, 10, 15 years ago because of those higher levels of household debts. And if you were to raise interest rates by two percentage points, combined with the sort of smallish rate hikes that have been put through for investors recently, that would probably push up, on my calculation anyway, that would push up the average household interest bill in Australia by almost 50%. So if you're paying $5,000 a year in interest payments, your bill will go to $7,500, $2,500 increase. That's quite a hefty impost on the average Australian household. Now, of course, the average is not a good guide to where most Australians are because everyone else is at different points. But, uh, you know, you would have a bunch of households in Sydney um, and Melbourne who are already paying a third of or maybe even more of their income and interest payments to have that payment go up by almost 50% would be very dangerous or very negative for them and I think would be a huge blow to the economy, all of which tells me that it's probably not going to happen. In the absence of much stronger economic growth, much higher wages, we're not going to see a few percent rise in interest costs. I think the Reserve Bank, when it does start moving, will be far more gradual. Um, and we probably won't see rates go up anything near what uh, that 3.5% cash rate would imply. Because the Reserve Bank would be very cognizant of these issues, of course. I think the Reserve Bank is cognizant of all of these issues. It knows there's more debt out there. It doesn't want to crash the Aussie economy. It doesn't want to crash the housing market. It does want to see more affordable housing and uh, a less bubbly sort of property market, but it doesn't want to crash it. It knows what happened in the US when uh, GFC happened and property prices crashed and uh, the US economy had its uh, worst collapse since the Great Depression. It's not the sort of thing the Reserve Bank wants to trigger in Australia. So when they do start moving, 
just as we've seen with the Fed in the US, they'll do one move, 25 basis points or 0.25%, and then sit back for, for several months and see what the outcome is, and then they might do another one. But I think at the end of the day, given the higher levels of debt, the greater sensitivity of the economy to higher interest rates means that it'd be very unlikely to get eight rate hikes done or, or 200 basis points of interest rate hikes. Sure. Well, Shane Oliver, as always, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So how do you think of that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The um, the dollar is uh, just heading up and uh, there's talk of it getting up to 85 cents. But as Shane says, it's not going to stay there for too long. No, and we hope not either because it's not very good for our uh, agri and uh, mineral industry. And, and not very good for manufacturers. Terrible for manufacturers and they've got hard enough roll as it is. That's right. Okay, now, Leon, what do you got in the news, Ben? Well, Gary, first of all, Britain will follow France in banning new petrol and diesel cars by 2040. The ban aims to encourage people to switch to electric and hybrid vehicles. Now, the British government has identified 81 major roads in 17 towns and cities which are in breach of European emission standards and where urgent action is required. Other measures brought in uh, could include retrofitting councils and uh, transport to make them cleaner. And uh, councils could change road layouts. They could reprogram traffic lights to make vehicle flow smoother and alter features like speed humps and local authorities will also be able to charge levies on drivers of diesel vehicles on the most polluted roads from 2020 if air quality doesn't improve. Europe actually is vastly more aware of the dangers of emissions than, than we appear to be. Uh, Amsterdam, for example, have got a, a great fleet of Teslas, quite expensive cars used as taxis, and the government subsidises the power for them. That's really interesting. Obviously, European governments, uh, starting with France, which had banned petrol cars in 2040, are much more aware of their commitments to uh, the Paris Agreement, but also they the EU has clean air uh, rules. That, that's right, and we need those. Oh, and don't forget Boris Johnson with all his bikes. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Who can forget that? Yeah. Now, secondly, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has attacked opposition leader Bill Shorten's claim that inequality is at a 75-year high. He's described it as a lie. At the same time, however, he considered that not everyone is benefiting from economic growth. Now, Bill Shorten will be announcing a Labor platform cracking down on trusts and other forms of tax minimisation, and the opposition leaders declared that inequality will be Labor's defining mission in government. Now, Mr Morrison rejected Labor's premise that inequality was now worse, but at the same time, he considered that economic growth was not flowing through to everyone, which is why he said the budget was very cleanly focused on addressing important essential services. Yeah, and with 20% of our workforce on part-time, I figure that's a fair example of some of the equalities that are there. I think so. I think so. And uh, with wages growth going nowhere. That's right. Now, Australian consumer confidence has rebounded on the back of last week's positive assessment by the ARBA of the domestic economy and solid jobs figures. The ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index jumped 2.3% last week, following the 0.4% fall the previous week. Households' views around current financial conditions rose 1.8% last week, entirely reversing the previous week's fall, and consumers' views towards current economic conditions increased a sharp 7.9% last week, and that brought the sub-index to its highest point in 20 weeks. And also, Australia's Consumer Price Index has eased. It's risen by a less-than-expected 0.2%. 
2% in the June quarter, taking the inflation rate down to 1.9% compared to 2.1% in the first three months of the year. And that was well below economists' expectations of CPI coming in at 0.4% and 2.2% respectively. And it's also below the RBA's target range of 2 to 3%. And based on a figure like that, I'd say the RBA would be sitting back and not doing anything with interest rates. No, that's right. Philip Lowe said yesterday, for example, he wasn't going to be in lockstep with the rest of the world. That's right. And uh, so they're just going to sit back. Yep. Now, uh, trustees of underperforming super funds have been put on notice of a crackdown by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authorities if they're not acting in the best interests of members. And directors of super funds who breach their duties could face jail and be made subject to the same civil and criminal penalties as directors of ordinary managed investment schemes. Now, the changes come five years after the collapse of Trio Capital, the biggest superannuation fraud in Australian history, which saw $180 million of members' savings disappear. And our Financial Services Minister Kelly O'Dwyer announced a package of measures to improve the governance of Australia's $2.3 trillion retirement savings system. And the government has put together draft legislation giving APRA broader powers. Under the raft of changes, funds will be required to publish annual reports on how they're being managed, including details of their fees and how they're spending members' money. They'll also be required to hold annual meetings, just like public companies in which super funds invest members' money. APRA will be given the power to refuse or cancel a my super authorization where it believes the licensee is failing to meet its obligations and to take preventative or, or action if it has uh, prudential concerns about a fund. And APRA has also been asked to look at ways it could make it easier for savers to opt out of life and disability policies obtained through super. Well, if you've got a honeypot with approaching $3 trillion in it, it's going to attract a lot of bees, isn't it? I think so. I think so. So that's quite, uh, quite significant. Now, Australia's consumer watchdog has announced an investigation into the recall of Takata vehicle airbags. The probe by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission comes after an investigation by Choice found that manufacturers are replacing defected Takata airbags with defective Takata airbags. And also comes a few days after police link a Takata airbag to the death of a 58-year-old man in a Sydney car crash. And the ACCC investigation also comes after a woman in the Northern Territory suffered severe injuries from her airbag after a crash in April. Now, the Takata airbag recall is the biggest in automotive history, and the defective airbags have been linked to 18 deaths worldwide. And the airbags are in 60 makes of cars sold in Australia, including Honda, Toyota, BMW, Mitsubishi, Subaru, Lexus, Jeep, Nissan, Chrysler and Dodge. The ACCC says it's seeking information from the Department of Infrastructure and Regional Development and car manufacturers regarding Takata airbags. And Choice estimates that more than two thirds of the 2.1 million cars recalled in Australia still haven't had the faulty airbags replaced. Now, of course, we have to remember that uh, Japanese auto parts maker Takata file for bankruptcy in the wake of an airbag recall. Yeah, and where, where's the money gone? That's true. Interesting one thing, Leon, uh, the uh, General Motors airbag was designed in uh, Australia and has had no problem. Now, Westpac has confirmed it's negotiating to sell its infrastructure investment arm Hastings Funds Management to listed property funds manager Charter Hall Group. And Hastings has investments in port, electricity networks, airports and the like, managing the $14.3 billion and uh, employing 100, 100 professionals. Now, Charter Hall Group manages office, retail and industrial properties through various listed property funds. Financial terms of the deal have not been disclosed. Westpac has put Hastings up for sale in 2015, but the deal didn't go ahead. And it's a deal that will lift Charter Hall into the ranks of major investment bankers, investment managers, I should 
should say, such as Queensland Funds giant QIC, AMP Capital and Canada's Brookfield. It's a really interesting deal because it changes Charter Hall completely. It takes them into the area of infrastructure funds management and that's going to transform the company. And could help most of the country as well. I think so. I think, And it's really interesting. It's a really interesting thing. Now, Murray Goldburn has forecast an 8% fall in its annual milk intake for 2018. Australia's largest milk processor's revised 2017-18 milk intake forecast came in at 2.3 billion litres. That's down sharply on the milk intake of 2.5 billion litres in its opening milk price announcement on June 6. Now, the bottom line is that this would see Murray Goldburn losing 200 million litres of milk this season because suppliers are switching to other processes. Murray Goldburn says it's offset the reduced milk impact through various cost and business improvement. It said the lower milk intake has not impacted the opening average available southern milk region Farmgate milk price of $5.20 a kilogram, which is a weighted average paid to dairy farmers in Victoria, South Australia and southern New South Wales. But Murray Goldburn says the rising Australian dollar could change that because it could create uncertainty in relation to the achievability of $5.50. Interesting just why the milk producers are walking away from them. They haven't had a good time. They have been uh, they have uh, dudded them before. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're very wary. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a major issue. Now, disgruntled shareholders can now take class action against failed electronics chain Dick Smith Holdings with the Supreme Court of New South Wales granting legal firm Bannister Law leave to file the litigation. And Bannister Law Principal Charles Bannister said the ruling was a positive for shareholders who'd lost money when the chain went belly up in January 2016, less than two years after its $520 million float. And he said his firm will allege Dick Smith had misled investors through its director's declaration stating that the accounts during 2015 were up to Australian accounting standards. And the firm also alleges Dick Smith had inflated its earnings to meet market expectations by deliberately buying too much stock, booking rebates from suppliers as profits and disguising weak retail sales with low margin commercial sales. A great name's got uh, down in the dirt, hasn't it? That's right. And now they're going to get sued. Now, the other interesting piece of information in the corporate world is that in a major strategic shift ahead of the arrival of Amazon, Super Retail has announced it's converting its network of Amart sports stores into the new Rebel stores by October the 31st. Now, the shift will expand Rebel's footprint to almost 160 stores, and the Amart brand will be discontinued in November. Uh, Super Retail says there'll be minimal impact on workers, with Amart sports stores employees redeployed and transferred to the newly converted Rebel stores. And Super Retail says its expected transformation will reduce underperformance forming categories, create synergies and margin improvement of $15 million after two years, and it will produce a one-off $34 million charge in its FY17 accounts and some further costs in 2018. Now, Super Retail Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director Peter Bertle said while Amart had been a strong performer, the strategic move allowed the company to anticipate and respond to changing the market dynamics that continuously evolve. And those are his words. And of course, that's in, in anticipation of the arrival of Amazon, and it's also going to build the company's omni-retail capabilities. Yeah, well, good for Mr. Bertles, but uh, just goes to show what the, the arrival of Amazon is doing to us. That's right, and a lot of retailers are going to have to adjust. Now, finally, Gary, the Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom has opened an investigation into suspected corruption in Rio Tinto's activities in Guinea, and the investigation comes nine months after the Australian-British miner reported itself to authorities in the UK and the US, and at the time, Rio Tinto said it had become aware of emails that referred to unexplained 
payments of 10.5 million in connection with the Simandu iron ore project in Guinea. And that saw Rio Tinto sacking the company's energy and minerals chief executive Alan Davies, who'd overall accountabilities for the Simandu project, and the head of legal and regulatory affairs, Deborah Valentine. Now, the serious fraud officers say it's looking into what it says is suspected corruption in the conduct of business in the Republic of Guinea by the Rio Tinto Group, its employees, and other associated with it. And the interesting part about this very complex uh, case is that the board and the executive of Rio Tinto seem to be to be welcoming it. That's right. They are. They are because they know it has to be cleaned up. Absolutely. And that's it for us this week. And uh, next week, we're talking to uh, Steve Arthur, who's the founder of Australia's first ever co-working space, Desk Space. Yeah, good. And that should be very interesting. And that's it for us this week. And uh, we look forward to bringing you all finance and economics news in just 30 minutes next week. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.